0: a week of intense emotion, joy and relief as hostages are reunited with their families in Israel, all coming against the backdrop of a truce, a pause in fighting between Israel and Hamas. We'll be speaking to one of Israel's leading experts on Hamas. It's unholy. I'm Jonathan Friedland of The Guardian in London.
1: And I'm Unique Levy of Channel 12 in Tel Aviv. Unholy to Jews on the news. This has definitely been the emotional roller coaster week here in Israel. I mean, really, Jonathan, just to see the sheer joy of hostages coming home, of children being released. When we started talking about this last week, we said the number 50. There have now been 78 Israeli hostages coming back. 36 out of them are. Children, kids, teenagers until the age of eighteen. I mean, this is really a remarkable thing to see. You see families united. You see things that, if you had asked me two or three weeks ago, when we were really in the, the sort of depths of despair here, I mean, that is something that I think Israelis maybe didn't allow themselves to imagine that this is something that can happen, and and it has, and it really, you know. To, you need to sort of pause on that. And, and we will talk about that a little bit more. But with that sheer joy comes the sheer dread of what the people who are still in captivity are going through. Because the testimonies of the people who have been in captivity are coming out and you realize little by little by putting all these pieces of the puzzle of this really terrible puzzle together, you realize what they have been going through. So the ups and downs of this week, I think someone described it in in my studio during one of these endless broadcasts of the hostages coming home, it feels like Memorial Day and Independence Day all wrapped into one, right? It's like 200% happiness, 200% despair. Just thinking about the fact that so many of these Families coming back, the hostages are are now realizing what happened to their families while they were taken into captivity. I mean, all of this together is just such a thing that is very difficult to to wrap your head around, uh, honestly.
0: Well, as you say, a whole mixture of emotions, Um, so many sort of coming th- and changing this kind of whiplash series of uh, feelings as it's going back and forth. I mean, we should say a couple of other things about what this week has meant. Obviously, there was a price for Israel to pay uh for those hostages. And that was the release at a ratio of three to one of prisoners held in Palestinian jails. And there was Coverage outside Israel. I'm not sure how much of it was uh, inside, but of, you know, family reunions on that side too of families reunited with Palestinian prisoners. And then, you know, some pushback uh, from uh, supporters of Israel in, you know, Jews in diaspora often disliking the idea that there was a kind of equivalence and that this was being treated as sort of similar events and people saying, but those are prisoners held, very, very different from hostages and then also of course all of this for terror
1: activity their prisoners yeah and then people activity.
0: saying that some of them were very young and all they've done is throw stones so all this argument back and forth that had been going on um but also the, the the absence of fighting and that enabling there to be a sort of pause in some ways of the information war as well because there was not that Uh, drumbeat uh, that there has been every single day for the previous six or so weeks in which the death toll was rising every day. And there were pictures of uh, devastating effects of Israeli airstrikes and action in Gaza for um people outside Israel, that has been a daily event watching as this death toll has risen into the thousands in Gaza and dealing with the consequences of that. And so there was a pause in that, and that enabled there to be a space for a different kind of uh discussion uh, and a different kind of conversation, and in some ways to put the focus back on October the 7th and to tell again the stories of those families and to hear again about the hostages. It just meant there was a shift because for the preceding six or seven weeks, it had mainly been about the Israeli response to October the 7th rather than about the event of October the 7th. And you just felt in these last seven days or so that there was a sort of, you know, a pendulum swing back a little bit. Uh, and I know for people outside the Israel, uh, that meant that there could be a sp- different kind of conversation.
1: We should say, yes, we should say something about this daily process. Like, I don't remember... Any example in modern war, uh, warfare of this kind of situation, every evening, right, this negotiation, Hamas putting out a list, a very detailed list about the citizens they're about to release, Israel then negotiating through Qatar and Egypt, uh, trying to get a quote-unquote better list because Israel, we should say from the outset, demanded mothers and children. That is the first thing that Israel wanted. So there are all kinds of examples of Hamas trying to say, okay, we're going to release the two twins that are three years old, Emma and Yuli, quote, but we're not going to release their mother, Sharon. I mean, all kinds of like these sadistic game playing that they're doing until the very last minute. What I'm trying to say just about the process, a daily list coming out. Families, just think about the families of the now more than 150 Israelis waiting to see if their loved one is on the list, if they are going to get the call. And then this release being prolonged by Hamas and, and sort of Making it into this performance, right, in which they are passing over as benevolent as they are trying to show that they are, you know, very forcing the hostages to, to wave to them and passing them on to the to the Red Cross and then the Red Cross taking them over through the Rafah crossing into Israel. This has become like this these daily pictures that are coming out. I mean, just think about how surreal all this all this is, and and we're talking about you know what is. Again, uh, the, the cruelty and the continuing torment and torture of these poor families who are, again, waiting to see. Now think about families coming back uh, um Children coming back, their mother was murdered, their father is still in captivity. Hamas is saying we're not releasing any men right now. I mean, consider this. This is. I mean, these are things that are unbelievable. We're in 2023. This is a sovereign country. It's a powerful country. And yet it is subjected to this kind of, um, you know, torment and slow torture evening after evening
0: for a week. You mentioned um, this m- business of the uh, Hamas men ordering, making the hostages make a show of saying goodbye and so on. I want to just pick up on that because that has been become, every part of this war is a battleground in the information war, as we mm-hmm. know, and particularly played out on social media. And there are some apologists for Hamas, I would describe them as, who have been trying to seize on these images to say, look, it shows they were really, look, these hostages were treated so well. Look how friendly... The hostages are to their previous captors. You and I, several weeks ago, in the very, among the very first releases when Yocheved Lipschitz was released, and there was this whole discussion about the handshake and the meaning of the handshake that she gave to one of her captors. How are, is, how is it being deconstructed and sort of understood in Israel? These scenes where the hostages appear to be smiling, saying goodbye and so on. I have to say myself, just as a human being, I've reacted thinking when I've seen those, you can read nothing into that because they are still captive and because who knows the psychology of someone who's been kept for seven weeks and what goes happens to you. But you tell me how you interpret, and not just you, but how people in Israel are talking about those pictures, those apparent scenes, because it's talked about a lot here.
1: Well, first of all, no one has any doubt of (laughs) Hamas is being a sadistic, cruel organization. Now, just listen to the children coming back from captivity and the stories they're telling and the stories their doctors are telling about kids... Uh, uh, suffering from malnutrition, from digestive problems, kids who have been in tunnels for more than 50 days and are now trying to get used to sunlight again. Eitan Yalomi, a 12-year-old boy whose father was also abducted, they were separate, was in solitary confinement for 16 days. He's 12. He was forced to see... Uh, uh, the footage of the atrocities of October 7th. He is 12. Thomas uh, and Hand... And we're told
0: that by his aunt, I think. We're told by his
1: aunt, that. yes. And and uh, uh, Thomas Hand, who's uh, Emily Hand's father, she is nine. He's saying on Israeli television to Ilana Dayan, he said, I need to fix my broken child. She is nine. This is what these people did. Every elderly woman coming back suffers from at least... Eight a loss of eight uh, to fifteen kilograms. This is starvation. There are reports from the Thai citizens being released that they saw Israelis being beaten in captivity. By the way, there are also uh, the you, you mentioned Etan Lomi's aunt. She also said he was beaten by Palestinian residents. I will say this again. He is a twelve year old boy. The stories of how these Israeli hostages were tortured tormented, starved for more than 50 days, if anyone has still any question about the uh, appearance of these people, of Hamas being in any way benevolent. I mean, this is I'm, it's beyond ridiculous. I don't know. maybe it's the fact that I haven't slept for a week and I don't know how to even respond to those kinds of claims. I mean, it's ridiculous. and by the way, you see the performance, it's an act. I mean you see the whole uh, you know the the lighting the you, you almost feel the director in the on the scene set, telling them and again you say these people are waving remember almost every single hostage released left someone behind so they would be very concerned about the way that they are either you know adhering to any any sort of instruction they have received from the the people who took them captive
0: this is exactly what I wanted you to say because I've been uh, appalled by people uh, interpreting those handover videos as somehow evidence of benign treatment, and saying there was a former there was a former correspondent for one of the big British newspapers who yesterday tweeted out footage saying this is next level. Look, high fives, uh, handshakes. This shows you that the uh, Hamas equals ISIS narrative is false, and uh, it is. For one thing, it is so ignorant of human psychology for the reasons you've just said, which is if you've got people there, you still feel these people have a tremendous hold over you. You are going to do whatever it takes to, uh, to not displease them. That's part of the dynamic between captor and captive. And I think people have, in a way, revealed a lot about themselves by not, uh, taking the, the, you know, giving the obvious view of this. You mentioned, uh, Emily Hand and Thomas Hand. This is, Uh, a case that has gathered a lot of attention in the English-speaking world, you can imagine, because of uh, uh, Emily Hand's Irish father, Thomas Hand. The video of Emily, I think, did show a child who looked absolutely, well, his word was broken. And I think a lot of people saw that and thought, Felt very shaken by seeing her. And that was the prompt for comment by the Irish Prime Minister, which caused, again, some controversy when he said, sort of channeling a verse from the Gospel of Luke, I think, that a child has been lost and now is found and returned. And a whole lot of people saying, no, no, this child was not lost. This child was abducted as a hostage. You know, this is a different thing. So there is again i think it's outside israel more where there is a kind of battle over making sure this thing is described properly and remembering the great crime war crime actually mm. that remains at the center of it
1: yes and when you think of you mentioned emily uh, all of the many of the kids are coming back whispering they're not speaking uh, aloud because they have been told by their captors not to speak. So there's, they're all whispering. And, and everyone, every sort of family member is reporting that they need to convince them that it's okay to now speak regularly. I mean, again, just think about these children. For example, you know, Elaine Dafnail Yakim, 15 and, and 8 years old, coming back to their mother, Mayan. And realizing only when they came back and realized their father is not there to see them, that their father Noam was was murdered. I mean, almost every single family of hostages is also a bereaved family, whether they know it when they're uh, in captivity, whether they realize it when they're coming back. These are also children that can't go back home because their homes are either destroyed or just Physically, they can't go there. It isn't safe for them. I mean, there's so much to think about. When you think about the, the the Brodach family, the father of Eichai, who was part of the sort of, uh, he was fighting terrorists on, on October 7th. He was part of the civilian emergency squad on Kfar Aza. And four of his family members, his wife, Hagar, his children, Ufri and Uriah and Yuval, were all abducted. For 50 days, they thought he was dead. I mean these are mind-boggling situations again in a country that's supposed to be a sovereign country in a in a world that we thought uh, w- was relatively safe and obviously uh, it really isn't
0: so obviously the domestic story in Israel is just the human story the kind of joy and relief that we've been talking about of these families reunited and the pain of those who are still awaiting reunion with their uh, relatives Um, There's been a lot of coverage of that um, outside the country, lots, but there has always been as well, huge focus on, well, two things. First of all, the truce that there is now, uh, and the opportunity that has uh, opened up for people to return from south to north in Gaza both residents, but also aid organisations and others. And there's been a lot of coverage of their reports of the devastation they have seen. Um, you know, Gaza City, just huge parts of it reduced to rubble and and lots of discussion about how there could be any attempt to rebuild life there and how people could possibly go back to their homes. But also then tied to that, this conversation about fighting uh, starting again and I noticed, um, I think coming out of the United States, some reference to somebody saying everybody in the world wants this fighting to stop and for not to resume. And I remember thinking, mm, I'm not sure that's right, because the conversation I had with a few people in Israel last week, military people, was on the lines of, you know this the being a predicament and a dilemma because of course wanting hostages back but fearing that a pause in fighting would allow hamas to regroup rebuild themselves uh, move around some commanders to go from hiding places where israel knew where they were to places where israel won't know where they are because they believe, Israel's military planners, that this is a war that has to be prosecuted to defeat Hamas. And therefore, when, you know, voices out of Washington and elsewhere say, of course, everyone wants this thing to end now and not to resume. I found myself thinking, well, I'm not sure that's completely accurate. I think there are plenty in the IDF and in Israeli government who don't want that because they feel they have a job to do to inflict a major defeat on Hamas that they have been stopped from doing and that they need to continue, and therefore, I wonder—you'll tell me whether there is some degree of unease about the the extension of this truce and a desire to actually get back to fighting, even though the world will be appalled by a resumption and an increase in this death toll. But they feel the job needs to be done.
1: the The story of the hostages is, of course, not detached from the question of the ceasefire for two reasons, or the the question of the the war against Hamas. Israelis are completely the opposite. They are galvanized by this. What happened this week uh, did two things. One, convinced them that it was only the military pressure that uh, forced Sinwar to ask for a ceasefire and in in return for a ceasefire, release hostages. So there are many, many in Israel. This is kind of a consensus here that without this military pressure, he would never have released the 78 Israelis that thankfully are now back home. And because of those stories coming out, because Israelis realizing, not that they did not realize the horrors of October 7th, but what has been done in captivity to their citizens and to their children, this just convinces them more. And as I said, galvanizes them more to say, this threat has to be eradicated. This can never, ever happen again, that this terror organization kidnaps our children and takes them into Gaza. So the, the, the worldview that you just described as being, you know, a lot of people saying we have to have a ceasefire. Israelis are really in the opposite direction. Of course, the families of the hostages still uh, left in captivity, quite concerned. What happens if the war resumes and their loved ones are not uh, back home? But really, most of the Israelis are kind of convinced this war can't stop now. And I think that we have so much to talk about, uh, about Hamas and the rationality and the sort of ideology that runs through the organization itself, but of course the person who perpetrated the massacre and is is responsible for it. So we wanted to talk this week uh, with one of the biggest experts on on Hamas.
0: Michael Milstein is a former advisor on Palestinian affairs to the coordinator of government activities in the territories, COGAT, territories being the occupied territories, the West Bank, also including expertise on Gaza. And he headed the Department for Palestinian Affairs uh, for Israeli Defense Intelligence. Uh, He is widely described as uh, Israel's leading expert on Uh, Hamas. And crucially, was one of the very few people in this area that did not believe what had become the kind of conventional wisdom in Israel that Hamas were deterred. And for all those reasons, Michael, very good to have you on Unholy. I've got to ask whether you were as surprised as everyone else around the world was by the events of October the 7th, or whether there were signs that you had been picking up for some time of what was to come?
2: Well, uh, as you mentioned before, uh, Jonathan, for the last uh, three years, uh, my voice was quite critic against uh, Israel's uh, policy uh, toward, uh, toward Gaza. I mean, mainly the uh, economic uh, measures that were promoted uh, toward gaza and the assumption that that by those measures you can maybe change the strategic situation over there and even change the basic behavior of uh, of hamas and i actually elaborated uh, on public i mean by by articles and by interviews i elaborated the uh, two two main arguments the first one was that you must recognize the basic ideological DNA of Hamas. I said that you must uh, understand that we are dealing with an ideological, hardcore ideological organization that will not abandon his, uh, his uh, long-term vision or, or his uh, long-term principles only for, uh, for permits for workers or any improvement in, in the uh, economic and civil situation in Gaza. The second uh, argument I elaborated was that uh, actually uh, during those three uh, years there were many uh, violations uh, by Hamas, and uh, we could see it in all kind of uh, permits that uh, Hamas gave to the Islamic Jihad to promote uh, clashes, violent one with Israel in Gaza, and of course uh, the ongoing effort to uh, promote incitement and terror attacks in the West Bank from Gaza mm. and I said that Israel actually uh, preferred to ignore those uh, uh, violations and those were actually the red lights the red alarms in our way and, and we, I mean Israel preferred to stick the policy of uh, of promoting the economic uh, uh, settlement the economic peace toward Gaza by believing that this will, will ensure the, uh, the uh, stability and the calm situation over there And regarding the the question of surprise, I think, Jonathan, that I was not surprised from the offensive itself. But I was surprised from two other things regarding this uh, offensive. First of all, the size uh, of, of this offensive. If you would tell me on the morning of, uh, of October the 7th that 20, 30, 50 terrorists of Hamas went out of Gaza and committed the terror attack of one of the bases, even took uh, hostages or, or uh, took imprisoned soldiers, it, it would sound to me very reasonable. But, f- but 3,000 uh, terrorists... In, you know, very coordinated effort, uh, this was far beyond any any of my assessments. And, of course, also the ISIS-style brutality of uh, Hamas. I, I, I know Hamas for about three decades. I do know that they can uh, uh, commit horrible things, also to their own people. But this time, it was really beyond any kind of, of imagination or of, of assessment about their basic uh, nature.
1: Because I, I, I want to pick up on that point, Michael, because, I mean, it, I think Israelis were, were surprised by so many things on October 7th, the scale, definitely the sophistication, of course, but also sort of the cruelty and the sadism of of this organization. I mean, there's a difference between... I'm sorry to go into the, to go granular on this. There's a difference between blowing up buses like we saw in the 90s and really sadistically torturing families. Like, where does that come from?
2: You know, it's, a ve- it's very important, a very, very uh, uh, prominent uh, actually uh, question. I think that you need many people in, in Israel, in the Israeli discourse, they ask uh, themselves, you know, w- what, are, what were the roots of this brutality, of this uh, sadistic uh, uh, behavior? And you know, many people uh, are trying to, to uh, uh, argue that uh, it is uh, the personal influence of Yihi Sinwar or many other prominent leaders in Hamas. And I must admit that when I, I'm checking the broad discourse among the Palestinians, I mean, you know, the social, the intellectual, the, the uh, cultural mm-hmm. discourse, I think that we're speaking about broader and deeper phenomenon. You, you know, when you're checking, for example, the, lo- the the world of the images, of the moral values, of, of the language itself among the uh, Palestinians in universities, in mosques, in the, in the media, even I- inside. The home and in the street. I think that we we can really identify a very negative. It, it's not only uh, only uh, a matter of uh, images or, or words, but really deep incitement, and it it is very prominent among the gen the, the Palestinian young generation, those who were born uh, around the year of uh, 2000 and after that. You can really see that they do not consider jews or israelis really as a human beings and therefore when when, when we saw those z representatives on october the 7th they, they were the prominent player the prominent group that committed the horrible uh, massacre i think they did not see the people they killed even babies and women as really human beings but you know a, a kind of demonic creatures. And unfortunately, the very problematic uh, result or uh, uh, phenomenon in, in the Palestinian arena after the uh, this horrible massacre is that there is almost no criticism and no other voice that will be elaborated and, and will say, it, it, it is really a horrible uh, massacre. You, you know, it, it, although we, we, I mean, the Palestinians are suffering and we are, we are victims, you cannot commit such a things. And I do think uh, you need that this time we're speaking about, you know, a problem that is much uh, beyond any political or economic problems. This is a problem of consciousness, collective one, and it will be uh, fixed or improved only by the Palestinians. Here in Israel, we cannot uh, affect or change the basic minds of the uh, Palestinians.
0: And when you say that um, there have been very few voices of condemnation, you mean within the Palestinian uh, family, within Palestinian society, that, that it's the uh, how few people have taken a stand against it. But just uh, what flows from that? If there has been this change that you're describing, a generational change, so that Gen Z recruits to Hamas have got to that point where they do not see the other as even human. If that is what we're talking about here, how realistic is it to imagine that Israel will be able to achieve its stated goal, uh, voiced by the Prime Minister and others, uh, of eradicating Hamas and I know that that is it, that's there's two parts to that in a way because it's partly I mean mm-hmm. I mean it partly militarily but I also mean it in a, in in the bigger sense that you're speaking about when you use a word like consciousness so how realistic is Israel's war aim in this conflict given your knowledge of Hamas
2: well you know I think that uh, you know we call it uh, Jonathan in Israel the one 1 million uh, dollars uh, question because uh, we understand better than 55 day, days uh, ago that there is no a uh, very uh, very quick magic uh, solution for the war in Gaza and uh, the main question here is what what do you mean when, when you uh, announce about eradicating Hamas from the map today we are speaking in Gaza uh, about about uh, it. 100,000 Hamas members. Out of them, uh, about 30,000 are the members of the, the military wing. I think that it is quite likely to uh, erase Hamas' military, uh, even uh, the political capabilities. I mean, the leaders, uh, uh, even the social uh, uh, prominent uh, figures among Hamas. But you cannot really uh, erase the whole uh, the whole movement. I do assess that even if Israel will implement the goal of removing Hamas from its current uh, position as a ruling uh, party or ruling player uh, in uh, in Gaza, Hamas will still exist in Gaza. And I do think or I do assess that even in the day after, when there will be a new administration, maybe even the PA will will rule Gaza, Hamas will not only exist but also be effective. It will uh, be maybe in a position, a very active one, which will uh, try to undermine the uh, future order. It can also uh, uh, be even uh, an underground, which will uh, uh, act uh, in a a more uh, military, more violent manner against uh, uh, the future uh, uh, regime in uh, Gaza. And, you know, Jonathan, we are speaking almost only about Hamas in Gaza. But we must understand that Hamas has also other arenas which the organization is quite uh, active in mainly the west bank and east jerusalem and of course outside the territories so we cannot speak about you know uh, an illusion that there is there will be no hamas hamas will exist i really hope that its impact and its uh, its uh, influence all over the palestinian arena will be limited but we should be realistic enough to understand that uh, this organization will not vanish so quickly
1: you know, you mentioned all of the arenas. There, there were, uh, there was a terror attack uh, in Jerusalem this morning. Three were killed, uh, three were critically wounded. Is that kind of what are, we are about to see? Because obviously, Hamas is trying to sort of embolden the rest of the West Bank and other arenas. As you say, are we going to see more and more of this?
2: Well, unfortunately, yes, Yonit. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, uh, I, I really, I, I, I can even say that uh, from day one of of the uh, of this war, Yehi Sinwar attempted to to inflame the atmosphere in other uh, other arenas, mainly in the West Bank, but also uh, in the Arab sector, in the Arab society here in Israel, and. When you're checking the discourses among Hamas, mainly in the announcement of, uh, of Hamas uh, senior figures or in the social media of Hamas, you do identify uh, a disappointment of uh, Hamas from uh, from the situation in other arenas which are not Gaza. They, for example, I mean, mainly Yehi Sinwar, he hoped that, uh, for example, the northern arena, Hezbollah, will uh, promote much broader conflict against Israel. Of course, the West. Bank and East Jerusalem, as it was in the uh, Operation uh, Guardian of the Walls in uh, May 21. But uh, this time, as, as in many times in the, in the past, Yichie War and Hamas, they find themselves once again in a direct conflict against Israel, very bloody one. And uh, th- their main slogan, unit is When El Malayin. Where are all the millions? Where are all, all the millions Arabs that uh, promised to, to help us? Right now, it seems that it is only uh, Gaza's uh, conflict. But as you mentioned correctly uh, before, there are kind of effects on individuals or, or small groups, for example, in Jerusalem uh, regarding the terror attack this morning. And unfortunately, as the uh, war will continue, and I assess that the war in Gaza will continue, we will see uh, more events like that.
0: I want to ask you about how they see the war as it's played out so far. You've mentioned their disappointment that other groups have not joined, and and Hezbollah in the north would be the obvious one. I'm wondering just of what it looks like to them, because to, to somebody on the outside, they would look at the sheer devastation, particularly in the north of Gaza there's obviously arguments about the accuracy of these figures, but a death toll that is said to be of in the round fourteen or fifteen thousand Gazans. On one level, you would assume that Hamas is responsible for Gaza. Would think this is a terrible, terrible defeat. But on the mm-hmm. other hand, do they, because of their different attitude to to death, do they think of this as a kind of success? In that they will now think a new generation will be filled with hatred for Israel, that they'll have been radicalized, and therefore what to the rest of the world would look as if like it's a terrible blow, to them they'll think, actually, this is good for us.
2: What? You know, Jonathan, in order to answer uh, this question, you must get into Yichie Sinwar's uh, mind and really to, to understand authentically how, how he sees uh, the world. Because, you know, if I'm trying to analyze what is his uh, strategic balance, 55 days after the offensive, that there is no doubt he knew that this is not a round of escalation when he gave the order of two, three thousand uh, terrorists to commit such a horrible attacks and massacres inside Israel, he knew for sure that it will, uh, it will cause dramatic uh, unprecedented uh, response uh, from from Israel. But I think that when he's he trying to do his uh, SWAT, he uh, as we mentioned before, he says to himself. Uh, First of all, I'm disappointed that the other fronts uh, were not inflamed, mainly uh, the Northern uh, Front. There are many casualties. Uh, You know, it's an unprecedented number in the history of the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. Uh, Of course, many others became refugees. Uh, Gaza right now is almost totally destroyed and it will be more destroyed uh, in the future. But on the other hand, And again, when I'm trying to get into Sinwar's uh, mind he feels that he actually wrote one of the victorious, glorious chapters in the history of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and even in the history of the, the, the uh, conflict uh, between Islam and the West, uh, you know, what they call the, the infidels, and uh, except this uh, symbolic, ideological uh, goal, he also feels that uh, Hamas still now demonstrated uh, impressive strong standing uh, the sumud they call it that uh, their basic image or position in the palestinian arena was uh, was very much uh, improved uh, they are very popular among all the palestinians uh, including the west bank and they even uh, they, they can even uh, uh, identify a broad uh, uh, solidarity with them in of course in the arab world but uh, also in the international uh, arena and I do assess that right now, Yehi s- says to himself, there is a threat on me. I mean, the, the Israeli plan to, to eradicate Hamas uh, from the map, but I assess that there there is a rift. There is a very uh, limited hope that I could uh, use this uh, truce uh, in order to promote broader ceasefire and maybe this uh, this situation will turn even in the future to a uh, strategic achievement and hamas will get out of this crisis this horrible war uh, with much more uh, achievements than this organization had when uh, when the war began on october the 7th
1: all of this is obviously very depressing for Israeli, mm. for Israeli years, but I, I,
2: but it's realistic. No, no, that's you're, that's you're why knows. we want,
1: we wanted you for the reality check. I mean, I think it's important to know where we stand, <laughs> even if it isn't pleasant to, to listen to, but I, I kind of want to take us back a little bit, uh, because obviously this deception Hamas pretending to be, uh, this organization that really cares about the improvement of the, the financial improvement of the lives of the Palestinians, et cetera, this, this, started a long while ago. And I'm thinking of that very famous... Uh, I don't know how many international listeners know this story, but while mm-hmm. there were conversations uh, between Netanyahu and sinoir about some sort of hudna, right? A cessation of hostilities in 2018. Sinwar passed on a note to Netanyahu. And of course, you know this uh, story very well. He wrote... Cal- yeah, t- "Calculate, calculated right, risk. calculated risk. And he wrote it in Hebrew and in Arabic. He wrote Sikun Mechusha. How long... Uh, has Sinoir been trying, to, you know, how long has this deception been going on for? And, and kind of help us, you've been trying to show us what it what it's like in his head. I mean, try and help us understand a little bit more about this this man, his intentions, who influences him, like talk about him a little bit more.
2: Yeah, so uh, actually, you know, I think you need that you cannot uh, think or analyze or describe the offensive of uh, October the seventh without speaking about uh, about uh, War because this kind of uh, offensive was also personally a result of his uh, efforts, a result of of his activities uh, in the Palestinian arena, and I do assess that he himself considered the offensive as the mission of his life. He is one of the founders of the the military wing of Hamas. He actually joined the Muslim Brotherhood two years before Hamas was established in in 1987, and uh, he was the responsible on an organization inside the military wing, uh, which was responsible to uh, uh, find collaborators. His uh, 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 you know, nickname was The Butcher because uh, he was known as a, as a very brutal member that uh, really uh, suspected uh, anyone and when he uh, came to a conclusion that you are a collaborator with the Shinbet or with IDF, he of course executed you in a very cruel manner. By the way, the executions were not only before his arrest in 1988 but also during the the, the years he spent in jail you know it's, it's quite amazing he executed by his own hands uh, almost seven prisoners of hamas inside israeli jail so this is by the, the, the kind of uh, of 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 uh, a person that uh, today uh, leads hamas and regarding the vision the the uh, mission of october the 7th actually Yikhi Senwar started to plan this kind of offensive a decade before uh, uh, October uh, uh, 23. Immediately after the uh, the broad uh, operation, the broad war that took place uh, in Gaza on summer uh, uh, 2013, he came to two conclusions. After being, by the way, very critic against the uh, former uh, leadership of Hamas headed by uh, Ismail Haniya, he said that in the next war, there will be two new uh, things. First of all, Hamas will be the organization, the player that will start the war. And second, the war will start in the Israeli territory, not in the Palestinian one. And those two lessons were actually implemented on October the 7th. And, uh, you know, I do assess that he lives in a different dimension of time. You know, we are Western-style, uh, realpolitik uh, analysts, and we do things, thinking in um, patterns of SWAT of, uh, you know, what will happen tomorrow and what are the scenarios that uh, that can uh, be. He, he himself, and by the way, a lot of other uh, Hamas supreme leader, they think in, in other patterns uh, of thinking. They, for example, really uh, consider the act itself... The jihad itself is the most prominent, important uh, issue. What will happen after that? They all say, "Allahu alam." Only God knows we cannot know uh, they are very fatal in their in their behavior, so we do need to understand that this is this is the enemy that Israel uh, faces uh, today. We are speaking about uh, really ideological uh, hardcore ideological uh, members that are really ready to, to sacrifice th- themselves and their families in order to promote ideological uh, uh, missions. Uh, it is very very different from any other enemy that Israel uh, faced uh, in the past. Uh,
0: you know, be- we're focusing on Yechia Sinwar. We should mention, given that we've been talking a lot on the podcast already about the hostage releases, that he himself was released as part of the exchange for the release of the hostage Gilad Shalit in 20. 20- 11 that when i think it was 1027 uh prisoners held by israel were released to bring back gilad Shalit. Uh, Sinwar right, was right. one of them and uh, and you know who who uh, who then could have realized that 12 years later he would be uh, behind the events we we've, we've been talking about but i just want to ask you about him again and where that hardcore ideology that you referred to goes to because there are lots of people around now focusing again on a revamped version of something people thought was long dead, namely the two-state solution, all mm-hmm. talking talking about variations of that, many variants of that. But given what you've told us about him and his ideological worldview and commitment, can you imagine the likes of Sinoa or Hamas in general ever agreeing to even tolerating such a plan Or would they, given everything you've just told us, set about using all the means at their disposal to prevent such a thing ever happening?
2: Well, excellent uh, uh, question, Jonathan, because, you you know, in order really to understand Yich Sinwar, you need to understand his mentor's uh, ideology. I speak about uh, Sheikh Ahmed Yassin, the founder of uh, Hamas in uh, 1987, uh, who actually uh, taught him Everything about radical ideology, and when you are checking, for example, Yigal Sinwar's current policy regarding any kind of settlement with with Israel, it is the same uh, slogans as Yigal Sinwar elaborated thirty or, or even thirty-five years ago. The basic uh, principle or slogan of of Hamas, which was not changed, was that yes. We can promote or uh, establish a coexistence with the Zionist entity. Of course, uh, th- this is the, the term they use in order to describe Israel, but it will never, never mean that I- we are speaking about recognition, mutual one, with Israel, what they call in Arabic, uh, Itiraf Mutabadil. You know, and, and according to War, and of course, Sheikh basic uh, principles, this kind of uh, of agreement of coexistence, they feel no commitment toward uh, those uh, moves, uh, according uh, to their uh, way of thinking. You can violate any kind of uh, of uh, such an agreement of commitment in any time and to attack Israel. If you analyze deeply the uh, offensive of October the seventh, you can really see that war actually promoted the same the same uh, principle he violated the understandings the the agreement that took place between Israel and uh, and the uh, Hamas for about 3 years uh, with no reason, actually, uh, only because he wanted to promote his basic ideological mission. And when we when we are asking ourselves about uh, the two-state solution and wh- what is the 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 standard, the opinion of Hamas regarding uh, such a vision, you know, I do think, Jonathan, what, that we must understand that in the vocabulary of of uh, Hamas, of of such a hardcore ideological organization, the term peace, salam doesn't exist. You know, they can speak with you about uh, uh, provisional coexistence or provisional solution, but they will always be focused on the authentic, deep target of eradicating Israel uh, from the map. You know, you can see it in every announcement, in every document of uh, of, uh, Hamas, uh, mainly in Arabic, because in English sometimes they twist the uh, basic uh, messages. But we must understand that any kind of uh, scenario that will include Hamas, not even as a prominent player, uh, or only as a partner to a future uh, Palestinian regime, it means that uh, they will cause problems. They are not; they won't be committed to any kind of uh, agreement, political negotiations, settlement, nothing like that. And, and this thing we learned on October the 7th, and we must uh, understand also when we are trying to analyze the future.
1: So if we are trying to analyze the future, and just, you know, if you're an Israeli, I don't want to sound too dark, but if you're an Israeli, average Israeli who maybe believed in peace, theoretically, up until October 6th, And then sees what Hamas did and sees how popular Hamas is uh, in the West Bank and in Gaza. Again, I don't want to sound too dark, but what hope is there for any sort of, you know, future peace between Israelis and Palestinians?
2: Yeah, maybe, Yonit. You know, I share with you the same same, uh, thoughts and the same uh, feeling that, uh, you know, we, we all, as the Israeli society, the Jewish society mainly, were shocked, deeply by the the events of uh, the massacre of October the seventh because I think that we as a society really understood that many of our our basic assumptions were, were really wrong because you you cannot really uh, explain the horrible events of uh, fifty five days ago only uh, you know in uh, all kinds of uh, political or economic uh, reasons uh, and analysts uh, i I do think that we're speaking about you know deeper problems regarding consciousness of the two uh, communities. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I do think that there were two Prominent lessons the the Israeli society learned from the uh, events of October the seventh, and there is a contradiction between the two lessons. The first one is that actually you cannot live together with uh, with the other community, with the Palestinians, in the same entity. You know there are people in Israel, even prominent ones like mm-hmm. Smotrich and ben they speak about one entity or one state between the river and the sea, and they pretend that uh, yeah there can be a coexistence, uh, peaceful one between us. I do think that the events in Gaza prove that uh, right now, at least, we cannot speak about about anything that looks like a harmonic peaceful. We can't speak about Bosnian style hell. And that's what will happen if there will be one entity. Mm -hmm. And the other lesson is that uh, we cannot give the Palestinians the option to be, let's call it, totally or full independent, because full independence of the Palestinians, like the situation that took place in Gaza 55 days ago, it means existential threat to Israel. Hamas took the, the freedom, the independence that existed in Gaza, relatively independence, and actually used this independence in order to improve, to promote much tougher a threat toward Israel. I do think that in any kind of scenario, when we will really try to be frank enough and think about a reasonable solution for the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. I think that there will be two things that we will have to promote as a society, not only politicians. First of all, separation, physical one, between the two uh, the two communities. In in Gaza, it's relatively uh, easy. In the West Bank, of course, it will be much more complicated because of the uh, settlements. And the other uh, point is always to make sure that the borders between Palestine, I don't know if the name of this uh, entity will be autonomy or state or, or whatever, but the borders between Palestine and the world in Gaza and in the Jordan Valley will be controlled by external, maybe Israeli forces, we cannot let the Palestinians have an open gate to the world because I do assess. You know, it, it sounds horrible, but I do assess that any kind of uh, such an open gate it means direct threats uh, on Israel, mm-hmm. and you know, you need it. Uh, I, I, maybe it's too early, but I do think that the, the Israeli public, even the right, many of the right wing supporters, day to day understand that you must uh, promote historic decisions regarding the Palestinian arena. You cannot leave it and and believe that, yeah, it will be okay, we can continue with the same situation. October the 7th prove us that you cannot uh, continue with the same reality for a long time.
0: Um, So those are, Michael some assumptions on the left that were wrong, in some ways some naivety about Hamas. But, But I want to ask you about the assumptions of the right, including the government and Netanyahu himself, about Hamas, where for several years, it seems, his strategy was to build up Hamas. And he said so explicitly, I think, to uh, fellow Likud uh, officials in 2019, we're saying essentially, we, "We, if you want to stop a Palestinian state, you need to uh, build up Hamas so that you keep Palestinians divided and so on. I want, given everything you've told us about Hamas, what would have led... Netanyahu and the right to feel that that was a sort of a wise course of action, a wise strategy. In other words, we've talked about where the left went wrong. Where where did the right go wrong on Hamas?
2: It's a very, very uh, uh, sharp, uh, let's call it uh, like that uh, question, Jonathan, because it really regards the internal Israeli uh, arena. And you know, when we're checking uh, Netanyahu's policy since uh, um, I, I think that uh, his uh, first days in as prime minister, I mean, in the end of the of the nineties, I do think that he really had a twisted image about the Palestinian arena. You know, considering the PA as an enemy and uh, always trying to make them uh, to make uh, them weaker. And you know, it was it was not naive but it was really twisted a uh, way to 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 see the pa of course you know i i do aware that the palestinian authority they are not re- you know a very uh, a very frank partner they do not uh, see things like uh, israel of course there is a lot of incitement among, and a lot of other problems as corruption uh, among the palestinian uh, arena but it, it is the least worst alternative uh, for Israel right now, because we pretended to, to, uh, I mean, the government pretended to believe that If Hamas will be more powerful, maybe it means that the the other guys, I mean the PA, which are very problematic, they will be weaker. And uh, it means that maybe uh, in the West Bank we could uh, promote much broader uh, moves, such as uh, building uh, the settlements or promoting any other civil uh, uh, steps. And that's, of course, uh, regarding not only to uh, realpolitik considerations, but also to uh, ideological considerations. But as I said before, and of course, I, I do think that Netanyahu has a broad responsibility uh, about the current uh, situation and the very, very fragile balance inside the Palestinian arena between uh, Hamas and, and, uh, and the PA. I do aware that it is not only a result of Israeli policy, but also of uh, internal Palestinian developments or or attitudes. You know, the PA is weak, not only because Israel is making uh, Abu Mazen or the regime in Ramallah weaker, but also because internal phenomena of this regime. I mean, uh, the things that I mentioned before, corruption and uh, lack of democracy and other negative uh, phenomena. And I do think that if we are trying or or, or if we will try to uh, describe better scenarios or better uh, situation in the future, there must be also a very deep reform inside the Palestinian uh, authority. I mean, democracy, uh, reforms regarding uh, corruption, and also representation of the young generation. You know, today the leadership of the PLO, Fatah, and the Palestinian uh, Authority, there is a lack of young generation among them. And this is, of course, a source of future alienation between the society and the regime. And I do think that uh, maybe the international arena, including Israel, Mm -hmm. should uh, uh, promote pressure on the PA in order to renew its uh, profile.
1: I want to ask something that goes very far into the past and, and something from this week. Kind of combined. But one is, Hmm. when you look at what Israel did since Hamas's creation, what do you see as Israel's biggest mistake, besides obviously misreading October 7th, but what is its biggest mistake when dealing with this organization sort of in general? And just out of curiosity, I have to ask you, what do you think about those stories coming out of hostages, actually? Because we talk so much about Ichis and Wal actually meeting Sinoir mm-hmm. and him, them talking him talking to them and saying you're you're protected here under the tunnels like what do you make of that story
2: yeah, so I'll start with, uh, with the the second uh, question you need. Uh, you know, it's, it's amazing. I also uh, was very much uh, impressed from uh, the reports about Yichistan War uh, meeting the, the hostages. And, I, you know, I, I do think that it reflects the fact that, first of all, he's very curious. And he always uh, understands the impact of, uh, you know... Uh, not only media, but also uh, speaking directly uh, with the other. I mean, with the Israelis. Although they, they, he he do consider the Israelis as, as you know an enemy that should be eradicated the, from the map. But you know, it's a very impo- a very interesting uh, point because we we in Israel we say that is Yechi Sanwar he really knows the Israeli society. He spent twenty three years in jail. He knows Hebrew. Uh, in contrary, by the way, to uh, Ismail Haniya or Khaled who don't know uh, Hebrew, and he really understands the uh, basic uh, principles or the basic layers of the Israeli society. But, you know, although all those uh, uh, things, I do think that there was a lack of understanding of Yichis and War about the Israeli society uh, that was reflected in the uh, current war. For example, I think that uh, he assessed the israeli society is much weaker than uh, he uh, he uh, found out uh, eventually and i do assess that um he thought that the Israelis uh, cannot bear a lot of uh, casualties, and it cannot bear a long-term uh, conflict. And in those two uh, points, I think that he found out that he was wrong. So it means that you know, although he he spent uh, so many years in Israeli jail and, uh, and knows the Israeli society, he also has uh, some uh, some spots. twisted images. Yeah. Yeah, about about the Israeli society, and regarding the question about the uh, the mistakes, the historical one of Israel uh, regarding Hamas, you know, I, I think that there were two uh, prominent e- events. The first one was uh, immediately after Hamas took control over Gaza in two thousand and seven. I do think that Israel had to understand, I mean, um, 17 years uh, years ago that uh, we are speaking about ongoing threat and uh, this kind of war that we, we have now, this kind of war should have been at least 15 years ago. And the second uh, mistake I can... Um, once again, connected with the, with the events of October the seventh, I mean the whole issue of the of the economic uh, settlement, the economic peace. I do think that it was misunderstanding of the basic DNA ideological of uh, of Hamas. We pretended or we believed that we are speaking about uh, revolutionary movement that turned to uh, to uh, a function as a ruling party and uh, will uh, have to to be focused uh, on uh, on uh, civil. Uh, Issues, But I think that we didn't understand enough the uh, fact that radical ideological parties, when they take control over states like Hitler in Germany and like the uh, like Khomeini in Iran, they do not become more moderate they become more powerful and they have more uh, measures in order to promote their uh, uh, ideological uh, vision. And I, uh, you know, it's very tragic, given to say, but uh, this was a very prominent mistake that led to the uh, tragic event uh, 55 days ago.
0: Michael Milstein, um, expert on Hamas, uh, really working around the clock right now. Thank you so much for all of that and for talking to us on Unholy.
2: Thank you, Yonit and Jonathan.
1: Thank you, Michael. Michael Milstein is such a, not only an expert on Hamas, but also it's it's very good to talk to him to get a very clear reality check. Uh, because I think it's human nature. You always want to you know, maybe believe things are better than they are. And definitely, if you're in a time of war, you think, oh, yeah, I mean, Israel is definitely crushing Hamas, and Hamas is nearing its breaking point. And and you talk to him, and you realize things are a little bit more complicated than that. It's sometimes very depressing, but it's also, I think, very important to hear what he has to say.
0: Yeah, and his profile of the man at the center of this, Yechir Sinwa, is really striking. I don't know how widely known it is that he was known as the butcher, not for the crimes he would inflict and had inflicted on Israelis but on his enforcer role with his fellow Palestinians rooting out those he saw as collaborators and meeting out a horrible and sadistic death on them and it does seem as if that sort of uh, mentality has filtered down that some of the sheer brutality and you you asked him about that about the particular nature of the crimes of October the 7th, that seems to bear the mark of the man at the top militarily. And uh, it is very much now an organization in his image um, and the notion that Israelis really across the spectrum front and from the top down were in some ways uh, deceived about who they were dealing with. They didn't quite realize what they were uh, up against in him. And I think, you know, sobering as well for people who are advocates of two states, and that is a, an idea that has now very much been revived. It's been talked about more energetically than it has been for years. It's sobering to hear someone like him say it's going to have to be something less than a state, um, that a Palestinian state for military reasons, he believes. And talked about not having that back door open to the Arab world. Um, you know, that's also another kind of reality check hearing somebody who really, you know, he was very modest, but he's reading the Arabic press. He's reading Arabic social media. He's really across what the, the sort of Hamas universe say to each other. And, uh, and he's, you know, he's listening to that more closely than, than, than almost anybody else in Israel. And therefore what he says on it has to be taken into account. Well, a reminder as well this week that there is news outside the immediate news of this conflict, and it came in the form on Thursday of the announcement of the death of Henry Kissinger, uh, former US Secretary of State, former National Security Advisor under Richard Nixon, uh, dying at the age of 100. It's funny because his name has been around, obviously, always, but especially recently um, because he was a player. In one of the few events that people have looked to as a kind of precedent for what we're going through now, namely the Yom Kippur War exactly 50 years ago, his role involved in shuttle diplomacy between the the parties trying, trying to bring an end and, and achieving an end to that war and laying the ground for what would eventually be the peace accords between Egypt and Israel, his very close relationships with Anwar Sadat of Egypt and with the Israeli leadership at the time. Uh, We talked about it, I think we played even a clip of it on this uh, show, how it was dramatized in the film Golda, his conversation Mm -hmm. uh, with Golda Meir. There were very few people around who were active uh, in our world now who could talk personally and have memories of dealing with these figures who are now historic figures, Anwar Sadat and Richard Nixon and Meir, and so on. Just a couple of observations about that. One, often forgotten German-Jewish refugee with experience of Hitler's Germany. That was in his mind and central and f- formative of him. And so again, a living witness to those events, there were very few of those around, but also, I would just mention a personal observation. I, um, you know, he's a hugely controversial figure. There are plenty of people who believe he was, you know, should have been prosecuted for war crimes involved in America's war in Vietnam and in Cambodia. Hugely controversial figure, but always listened to. And I did attend an event where he was the speaker just a few months ago in the summer and, you know, went up to him afterwards and asked him a question about uh, the defeat of Russia in its war with Ukraine, how that might be achieved. What was fascinating to me was in this uh, presentation, he was speaking to a few people here in London at this breakfast. He said constantly, uh, he was talking about the future and the role he might play in the future, and he was talking about the 2024 election in the United States and how important it was. And he said, you know, and of course, I have said to uh, uh, both parties, um, trying to do the voice, that he would be uh, willing to help in any way he could in the November 2024 campaign. In other words, this was a hundred-year-old man making plans for 18 months' time. Uh, he, I think, he was
1: also writing a new book, so that's optimism for That you. is optimism.
0: I mean-, I mean, I think it is. (laughs) a point about these people i remember similarly with shimon peres when he was 93 interviewing him and he was talking about his plans for the future those people who've lived these very long lives don't always the part of the secret of their success and longevity is that they don't look backward uh much uh, and certainly not not exclusively. They want to talk about the future. Perez. He want to talk about nanotechnology. Um, with Kissinger, he was with eyes on the you know the twenty twenty four election and what role he might play.
1: You mentioned his um, past as a refugee from the Nazis. He had that. I think it's safe to say a deeply pessimistic view of human nature uh, and a deep understanding of politics. He was a realist, right? He tried to move foreign policy from the idealistic worldview. Uh, there are a lot of critics of of Henry Kissinger who would, you know, say that he thought the end justified all means, and no matter how cynical those means were. And and I think that we at this point uh, need to say that he is was a genuinely brilliant man. Uh, you met him personally. I didn't have that uh, experience. Um, I think he also had a very good sense of humor. I remember this quote of his where he says, "I've been called indispensable and a miracle worker. I know because I remember every word I say. So that was, <laughs> but that was his, you know, so I, I think we will talk about him more in in um in future episodes. But I think that it's important that you mention this, we are so embroiled in what what is going on here in Israel. And really, as I told you, sort of the hostage lists that come out every day, and the whole nation is talking about it, that we need to sometimes kind of zoom out and remind ourselves there are other things uh, happening. I also do know that he was very concerned about Israel. Um During this time, what we are going through. Um, So, that I think is also important uh, to mention.
0: Yeah. Uh, At that event, that breakfast, at one point, he was telling a story about a conversation he had with Chairman Mao. Um, Again, think (laughs) about how much history you have to have to be able to sort of tell personal experience stories uh, about a figure from history like that. But then he sort of caught himself and he said, I'm not telling that story just as a sort of anecdote as if don't think I'm just some old guy in the corner telling old war stories. And believe me, he obviously could tell stories of war. I mean, he was a practitioner of war. Um, Instead, he said, I tell it only because of its relevance to now. Again, somebody who wanted to be seen as current and relevant. Uh, And so, of course, he would have been watching and uh, thinking about the war between Israel and Hamas because he was eyes on the present and future, not only, as I said, not only the past. So Henry Kissinger dead at 100 years old. Our focus is uh, inevitably on the ongoing, uh, and that is the war. When you and I spoke last week, there hadn't been any of these hostage releases. It has been the dominant theme of this last week. Uh, now some fears that those might come to a stop and fighting might resume. So the world and this story could look very, very different when you and I speak uh, with each other again uh, next week. But um, we should obviously say some thank yous before we say goodbye.
1: Yes, well, Sarah, thank yous to Guy Glaser and Omer Primat. A uh, special thank you to Omri Barak. And we will meet next week.
0: Yeah, we'll see, see each other then.